for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's have a minute of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Our Father and God, again, we come before you in worship, and as we open your word, Lord, we need to submit ourselves to your work, to your authority here. Lord, we are broken and faulty people. We sin so often in our lives in serving ourselves and doing the things we want. And Lord, you've told us that that sin that we leave unconfessed, that we allow to interfere with the fellowship with you and with others, Lord, it will keep us from being able to pray effectively. It will also keep us from understanding your word. And so I pray that you would work on our behalf, that you would forgive us for that sin as we've prayed today already, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and minds to hear what you have for us today. Do your work in each one of us, we pray. And Lord, use me during this time. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I need your power, your wisdom, your words to speak. We want to hear your truth, and so I pray that you would speak through me that you might be glorified, that your word might be spoken, and that we might be challenged by you today. We thank you again for this time. Use your word now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let me give you a quick review of where we are in our study of Revelation. Revelation 1 is an introduction to the glorified Christ as John receives a vision from Jesus Christ himself, and then Chapters 2 and 3 were letters that Jesus Christ wrote to each of the churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. He challenged them on things that they did well and things that they were not doing that were sin, that they needed to fix. And the overall message in chapters 2 and 3 is to be overcomers, to not let sin get in your way, but that if you confessed and did what God commanded, that you could be overcomers. And he gave Um, several instances of if you can overcome, then there are rewards in heaven. What we have in chapter 14 is an example of those overcomers. But going back to the earlier chapters, in chapter 4, John goes into the throne room of God in a vision, sees God on his throne, the angels around it, the worship of heaven. In chapter 5, the glorified Jesus Christ is introduced again, now in the midst of the throne of God. And he alone is worthy to open the book and the seals that are in the Father's hand. Chapter 6 is Jesus Christ opening the seals of that book. There's seven seals of judgment that he opens up and the judgment begins to be poured out upon the earth. And so we have chapters 6 through 11, which are the six seals of judgment. I'm sorry, the seven seals of judgment and then seven trumpet judgments. And at the blowing of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11, we have this kind of parenthesis in chapters 12 through 14. They give us background information of what's happening while these judgments are going on during the tribulation period. Chapter 12 and 13 give us background information about Satan's activity and what he's doing in the realm of the world's activities during the tribulation period. And we saw just recently in chapter 13 the Antichrist, that, that is Satan's agent, and then the false prophet, that is also Satan's agent, to draw people away from God and to condemn them in their sin as they blaspheme God and worship Satan himself. So 
when we get to chapter 14, we have a transition. We're still in that parenthetical uh, uh, portion here where we're kind of looking back or looking forward, actually, at this point. But in chapter 13, we saw details about what Satan did through the Antichrist and through the false prophet. In chapter 14, <clears throat> chapter 14, we are going to see the victory of Jesus Christ despite all of the efforts of the Antichrist and of Satan. And so there's a great contrast in chapters 13 and 14. There's a contrast of who's in charge and who's worshipped. Chapter 13 has the Antichrist and Satan leading the world, being worshipped as God by the world. Chapter 14, it is the authority, the power, the victory of Jesus Christ and him being worshipped as the God of gods. There's a contrast of the people and who they're following. In chapter 13, they're following the Antichrist and Satan. Chapter 14, Jesus Christ is lifted up and he is followed by the people represented there. And the outcomes are contrasted as well for the people that are described in each one. In chapter 13, all the people of the world are going to worship the Antichrist. They will all be destroyed, as we will read in, um, in, in coming chapters. But in chapter 14, we have the outcome of those who stood fast for Christ. And they are glorified. They are rewarded. They are the overcomers. And so... There's where we are in chapter 14, but I want to go all the way back to chapter 6 for just a second and read the last part of that chapter because there's a question that is given right at the end of chapter 6 as God's judgments are poured out upon the earth. And in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains." And said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That question is just put out there. Who can stand when all of this judgment of God is being poured out on the earth? Chapter 14 is the answer to that question. Look at the first words of chapter 14. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. This is about those who will stand. And they stand because they're standing with Jesus Christ. We've had the worst possible conditions in the world that these 144,000 witnesses have gone through. And they're introduced back in chapter 7. These are the same 144,000 witnesses that God sealed before many, much of his judgment was begun. Before all this turmoil started on the earth, he sealed them, he protected them, he commissioned them to be the evangelistic fervor that brings the gospel to the world in these seven years, specifically in the last half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. <clears throat> the condition of the world, as we've seen in the past several chapters, is this. Demons, hordes of demons, have been released upon the earth. They are tormenting and killing men. There are judgments being poured out by God, massive earthquakes, 
natural disasters like we've never seen before that are destroying not just the earth but man's infrastructure on the earth. Meteorites are falling from the sky and are impacting the earth. Islands and mountains are being moved out of their places. The sun, moon, and stars are being dimmed. There's famines, there's wars, there's sickness that abound in every place. That's the tribulation period. And evil is rampant like it never has been before as the Holy Spirit removes his restraining hand from the devil. And devil unleashes his worst upon mankind. That's the time period that we're talking about of these 144,000 witnesses that they endure, that they go through. And as you open chapter 14, this is at the end of that period. We're looking forward. John receives this vision of what is to come at the end of that tribulation period. And here's the answer to that question of who will stand. Those who stand with Christ. They will stand. So here we have in this, there's three visions actually here in chapter 14. The first one talks about these 144,000 witnesses. All of the visions talk about the victory that is given in Jesus Christ. But we're going to focus on these first five verses and on these 144,000 because there's lessons that we can learn through them. Now, you remember a little bit about them. They were sealed by God. They are given to the earth as God's testimony of his goodness, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are protected from the evil of Antichrist and from the evil of Satan. They will survive to the end. And remember how the Antichrist and Satan are trying to destroy all of God's people, especially beginning at the midpoint. They target them specifically to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And these 144,000 witnesses who are Jews become specific targets because they are specifically commissioned by God in this time to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world against everything else that is happening. Satan does not want that to happen, and so he will target them, and yet they will overcome because they are standing with Jesus Christ. So as we look at these 144 who are going to be delivered and protected by God, I want us to see some lessons of encouragement and also rebuke, maybe, an exhortation for us as believers today. So we'll start with verse 1, and first what you see in verse 1 is the place of the redeemed. Where do they stand, the place of the redeemed? It says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Who are they with? They're with the lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, but he's not dead, he's alive. And here he is the conquering king. In fact, this vision is just before Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem for his millennial kingdom reign of a thousand years. This is after his second coming when he comes to earth and these witnesses are standing with Jesus Christ physically on Mount Zion where Jesus will set up his kingdom. And they are with him after all the turmoil is ended. Now, we know that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. He's glorified. He's standing on Mount Zion after his second coming, ready to take his place as the rightful king of the earth at the end of the tribulation. Remember, we already saw him in chapter 5 
worthy to open the book and open the seals. This is the Lamb whom the angels and the angels and the elders worship in heaven, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And only now, as we see the Lamb in this vision, he's not in heaven. He's on earth. He's standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And these 144,000 witnesses are standing with him, victorious, overcomers. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2 says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Mount Zion. He says, beautiful in verse 2, beautiful for the situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Maybe you never realize this, but as you read through the Psalms, much of them are prophetic toward the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Psalm 48, beautiful for the situation is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Isaiah chapter 24 verse 23 says, the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. So what we're talking about is future literal events that will happen on this earth, Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, ready to set up his kingdom after the tribulation is over. And these witnesses are with him right there, still alive after all the turmoil of the tribulation. Some commentators believe that this is a picture of heaven, okay? That this is referring to Mount Zion, Mount Zion referring to heaven. Because several times in scripture, Zion, the word Zion, refers to the kingdom of God in heaven. But if that were true, that this vision is seen in heaven, not on earth, then that means the 144,000 witnesses have died. That they're not still alive. They did not survive the tribulation period. And therefore, so much for God's seal and protection. So we have to look at this as physical Jerusalem, physical Mount Zion. After the tribulation period, when Christ has come back already at his second coming and is ready to set up his kingdom. This is the Mount of Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible tells us that it will be the highest remaining mountain in the world at that time when Christ sets up his temple and rules for a thousand years. Psalm 102, verse 16, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Talking about the second coming of Christ. Psalm 102, verse 21, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. Again, talking about the second coming of Christ. Psalm 132, verse 13, the Lord hath chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. That's not just talking about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament worship of the saints, is talking about the second coming of Christ and his millennial kingdom when he will rule literally from his temple in Jerusalem. Micah, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That is prophetic about the second coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom. It literally will be here in Jerusalem 
and these 144,000 witnesses will be standing there with him when that happens. And so this is right at the time that Christ is about to begin his millennial reign. And they are standing with Christ. So that's where they are, in Jerusalem, with the king, at the end of all the turmoil. Why are they there? That's another question. Why are they there? And it says, gives us that answer right at the end of the, the verse 1. It says, because they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, we just finished studying chapter 13. And at the end of chapter 13, it talks about the mark of the beast, those who receive his name or the number of his name. And you cannot conduct business. You cannot buy and sell without it. Those who pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and to Satan will take that mark so they can survive. And it says that all the people of the earth will bear the mark of the beast, except those who believe. And without it, they cannot get substance to survive. Because self-preservation is their God. And that's what Satan wants us to believe the most important thing in our lives is, is self-preservation. I have to take care of myself. That's the attitude of people who worship Satan, because it's all about me. Satan promises all the pleasures and provisions of the world. And yet God promises so much more than that. We read this morning in our scripture reading that we're not to think about, we're not to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. God already knows we have need of those things, and so we're to focus first on the spiritual kingdom of God. That's the most important thing. And yet Satan distracts us. He distracts the people in chapter 13 of the world, and he, and he basically says, all right, if you want to stay alive, take my mark, pledge yourself to me, and I'll give you everything you need. Physically, and so they take the mark of the man of perdition rather than taking the mark of the Savior. Now, these 144,000 witnesses we learned about in chapter 7 were sealed in their foreheads with the mark of God, the seal of God. God commands his angels, before we start this mess, you go, you pick out these 144,000 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. You mark them in their foreheads and they will be sealed by me through this time. And so they are marked with the name of God in their forehead. Not the name of the Antichrist, not the name of the beast, the mark of God. The name of God. And that's what defines them. And that's why they can stand, because they have pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ and to the Father. Not to some earthly authority. Not to whatever will provide for them physically and keep them alive on this earth. They are chosen by the Father. Now, it's interesting because this phrase that we read here at the end of verse 1 that says, having his name written in their foreheads, the earliest manuscripts of the scripture actually say, having his name, talking about the Son or the Lamb, having his name and the name of his Father written in their foreheads. Which means they belong to both the Father and to Jesus Christ. Now, who are God, the Father's chosen people? That's Israel from the Old Testament. These are Jews, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 
That's what chapter 7 says. So they belong to God's chosen people, chosen by God as Hebrews, Jews, with his name in their forehead. And they have not abandoned that. They still worship the God of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are faithful to him. But now they are also faithful to Jesus Christ, his son. They are among the remnant of the Jews who will accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so he has both, they have both the name of the Father and the name of the Son that seals them in their foreheads. So these 144,000 are sealed just as the people of the earth are sealed with the name of the beast. These are sealed with the name of God. It cannot be broken. So here that we see why they stand with Jesus. And we see that they stand with Jesus Christ at the end because they stood for Jesus Christ during the greatest battles of their life. They end up standing with Jesus Christ at the end because they stood for Christ during their lives and during the worst part of the world's history. Now, God protects his own. God has promised to protect his people. He has given us all kinds of psalms that give us promises I read this morning from Psalm that Jesus Christ will be king, but in that Psalm is a record of his provision. Psalm 91, if we read that, that tells us of God's protection. Psalm 48, God is our refuge and strength. I mean, there's all kinds of Psalms that talk about God's provision, his protection, his refuge for his people. Psalm 37 Let me just share a few verses from Psalm 37. Depart from evil and do good and dwell evermore. Stand for Christ. For the Lord loveth judgment, forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Now I'm going to keep reading, but I want you to put this in context of what's coming. Not necessarily just what we have now. The seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. God's kingdom. Christ's kingdom. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom. His tongue talketh of judgment. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. We just saw that. Chapters 12 and 13. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave them in his hands, nor condemn them when he is judged. Wait on the Lord, keep his way. He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man. Behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord shall help him and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. That is a description of the last three chapters of Revelation that we just studied. Psalm 37 is a perfect picture of what God is going to do in delivering his people. And it specifically is going to be fulfilled in these 144,000 witnesses. Not just them, but all who trust in him. The Bible points us over and over and over all through scripture to this event, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will establish his kingdom. So the place of the redeemed is standing 
with Jesus, both in this life and in the one to come. That's the first thing we can learn. Second thing is that we see the song of the redeemed in verses 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 14. As I heard, I'm sorry, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Now, first, I want you to look at the voices of this song. Okay, we've seen these voices before, most of them. First, you have a voice, this voice from heaven is what John says. John is now hearing this sound or these voices from heaven. And in the Greek, what it's saying is, I heard a voice from heaven, and then he describes it with these three metaphors or, or similes, as a voice of many waters, the voice of great thunder, the voice of harpers. That's this voice that he hears. But we've seen all three of those voices before. In Revelation chapter 115, John describes the voice of Jesus as the voice of many waters. So we have Jesus speaking. In verse, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, John describes the voice of the cherubim as the voice of thunder. And here he has the voice of thunder. The angels are joining in now. And then the voice of harpers in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it describes how the elders in heaven have harps representing a song of praise from the redeemed, the elders representing the church of God. And so we have all the inhabitants of heaven joining in this song, all together. That's what John hears. And then, in verse 3, and they, talking about these witnesses, and they, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So we have all the music and praise of heaven from people in heaven, the angels, the church, praising God. It's a, it's a song of praise. And now it's the witnesses' turn. The 144,000 witnesses turned to join in that praise, to join in that song. And it says, and no one can join in that song except these witnesses. Now, why? Why is this a new song, in a sense, that only they can learn? Well, you think about who's already singing the praise of God from heaven. Martyred saints. The angels. The church that's in heaven with God already. Singing the praise of God but they're in heaven. This is the first time we see this song of praise on earth, the same song of praise. But what is the song of praise? Final redemption and deliverance. See, this song that the 144,000 are singing is the first time that anyone on earth is able to sing that Jesus Christ has finally conquered all the enemies of God. And they are literally, physically, and spiritually saved, standing with their Savior on earth. Nobody else could sing that song to this point. And so it's a new song for them. It's a new song for everybody. And they are the first ones to sing it. 
So even though all believers are redeemed from the earth, and it uses that phrase at the end, it says, which were redeemed from the earth. All of us who believe in Christ are redeemed from the earth. But these literally were bought out of all of that mess of the tribulation and spared in human form like nobody else before them. It's not going to be unique to them forever. They are the first fruits, the next verse tells us, because there are others that will join them. There are the martyrs who will eventually join in as they come to the earth in Christ's kingdom, not in human form, so it's a little bit different. But there are those who survive through the tribulation period to stand with Christ in the end in his kingdom. Remember the remnant of Jerusalem that God secured in his place of refuge? that the Satan tried to destroy with a flood, and the earth swallowed the flood up, and God preserved his remnant. They will come through alive. They will join in this song. And there will be others, Gentiles, who believe, who do not die. They will come into the kingdom of Christ alive as human beings. And so this song will grow, but these are the first ones. This is the, the new song that only these, this group can sing at this point. So this new song will be a song of those who are saved both spiritually by Christ, but also physically through the turmoil of the tribulation period. Nobody else can claim that except these and those with them. So here's their song, the song of the redeemed, of praise to God, of deliverance. Now we sang this morning praise to God of his deliverance, of his protection, his provision for us. Okay, And we know, the Bible says, that God will provide all our needs, that our salvation will bring us into the glory of God, that we will receive glorified bodies without sin. Has any of that happened yet? No, there are days when we seemingly don't have what we think we need, right? We still have Christ, so we have what we need. We just haven't gotten there yet in our thinking. But we haven't been totally redeemed from sin yet because we still bear the effects of sin in our bodies. We still fight against the old nature. Someday that'll be taken care of when we get to heaven. But not yet. So we can sing the song of redemption. I mean, that's what we praise God for, even though it hasn't been totally fulfilled yet. Here it's been fulfilled. So we see the song of praise that comes from the redeemed. Thirdly, we see the character of the redeemed. I'm going to spend the last couple minutes talking about this. The character of the redeemed is in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Let me stop right there. There's three definite statements that are made about these men here. He says, first, they're described as not being defiled with women. So the reference here, in general, is a physical and spiritual purity. They have remained pure physically and spiritually through the worst time of evil in earth's history. Now that's saying something. And it's not them. It's because they stood with Jesus. Okay? Through that. God sealed them. God protected them. And they were held in God's hand. And that's how they were able to do that. But they have remained pure. Spiritually, obviously, they have not bought into the system of evil, the system of lies that is taught by the Antichrist, the one world religion that rejects God and exalts Satan and his agents. They have stayed spiritually pure from all of that. But they've also stayed physically pure. Now, 
This means they have not entered into a physical relationship with a woman that has defiled them. The word defiled here means soiled or made filthy, okay, compromised in some way. The same word is used in Revelation chapter 4 when it talks about the church at Sardis. It says, uh, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Those who have not given in to the temptation of Satan, to the pressure of the world, even to the pressure of peers who may be weak Christians who just can't handle it anymore. These have stood strong. And so physically, they have not given in to this defilement. Now remember, in the tribulation period, evil will be abundantly rampant, worse than it is today. But if you just look at our situation today, And when we talk about the physical intimacy that God ordained and intended for marriage, and yet how man and Satan have perverted that, and what it will be in the tribulation, ten times or a hundred times worse than it is today. I want to remind you, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gives Timothy a little bit of a picture of what's coming. And he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, talking about the end days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We just read that in chapter 12 and 13. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. Forbidding to marry. God's institution of marriage was ordained by him. It belongs to him. It was ordained and established by him. Satan wants to remove that. So the only context in God's plan for physical intimacy between a man and a woman is within marriage. But as you see in our world today, they're trying to undo that. They want to pervert that system. And in the end times, forbidding to marry So there's no legitimate standard for physical intimacy from God's perspective, except marriage. And if they do away with that in the the end times during the tribulation period, the only physical intimacy that's left is perverted, inordinate relationships. And the 144,000 remain undefiled. They don't give in to it. They remain pure. And at the end of that phrase, it says, and they are virgins. Now, this word is important here because the previous phrase about not being defiled with women does not refer to marriage relationships specifically. And I'm going to explain that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Talking about that physical relationship between a husband and wife, that is ordained by God. That is a blessing from God, and it is part of God's will. In marriage, not outside of marriage. Outside of marriage, it's a defilement. So when the first phrase talks about them not being defiled by a woman, it can't be referring specifically to marriage. It doesn't mean in that instance that they're not married. They could be married. They just are faithful in that marriage. But this phrase here, when it talks about them being a virgin, it's talking about them being single, unmarried not in any relationship with a woman, okay? The word virgin here 
and knowing other scriptures that use this word gives me, um, I guess, enough substance to say, I would think that these are unmarried men that remain unmarried through the tribulation period. It's not that the, the defilement comes from being married. It's that they don't buy into the perverted intimacy that the world is, is perpetuating. Okay? But also, when it says that they're a virgin, the word virgin here, this is one of the only times in Scripture that it's used to refer to men. Most of the time, it refers to women. But in referring to women, it always talks about an unmarried woman. Okay? Secondly, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 goes to great lengths in a discourse about those ministers who are dedicated to serving God with their lives it is better for them to remain unmarried. Now, it's not a command. It's not saying if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to commit your life to Christ, you can't get married. But Paul says, I believe it's better if you're going to commit your life to ministry to remain unmarried because then you don't have to worry about your wife. Now, think about Paul when he said that. He's traveling all over the world. Peter was married. We know that. And yet Peter was away from home for long periods of time. Now, he didn't venture as far as Paul did, but he had to leave his wife behind on many occasions. Okay? And that's why Paul says, we don't have to worry about a wife if you're not married. You can dedicate your thoughts, your intentions, everything you do can be solely dedicated to God. Without, and it's not bad that you're taking care of a wife, but it's almost a burden in ministry. So this ministry, in this exceptional time, when it's so bad for these 144,000, I believe God's saying, they're not married either, okay? Because it's another burden they would have to bear. And so God frees them from that by keeping them, as he says, virgins. And so their whole lives, they don't have to worry about dying and leaving somebody behind. They don't have to worry about not being home to take care of a family. Their whole lives are dedicated to, it doesn't matter what happens to me, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Okay? So I believe they're probably unmarried men who remain pure physically and spiritually. Now the second thing we see about their character is this. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Look at uh, the next phrase, it says, Um, after for they are virgins these are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth they follow Jesus Christ wherever he goes they are dedicated to being with their savior with the lamb now we can apply this in our lives spiritually now but can we actually be with Jesus Christ where he is right now if you die you can okay because he's in heaven until we die we're not going to get there so we can't physically be with Jesus Christ Okay, this is talking about physically, they are with him after he comes back. But in a sense, they have been with him through this whole time as well. Because their lives were dedicated to nothing else except doing his will and proclaiming his message. And God sealed them for that purpose. And so they're devoted to following Jesus Christ above everything else. And they stand for Christ and his testimony through three and a half years of turmoil and persecution that is like nothing this world has ever seen. But when Christ is present, where are they? With Jesus Christ, standing with him. Now, spiritually, we can take this same approach. We can't be with him physically, but 
where Jesus Christ is, that's where we should want to be if we are his followers. So what keeps us from standing with Jesus Christ spiritually? Our wants. This morning we studied the children of Israel craving meat. It kept them from seeing God's will, from experiencing God's will in their lives. Our cravings, our wants, our desires that are not what God wants for us will keep us apart from being where Jesus Christ is because we want to be somewhere else. We want to experience something else. Christ wants us with him. And if you evaluate your life and just in the places you go and the things you do and say, ask yourself this question. If Jesus Christ were on earth today, the perfect, holy son of God, would he go and do the things that I'm doing now? You know the old question, what would Jesus do? If Jesus Christ were here, would he be here? And if he wouldn't, should I? Believers want to be where Jesus Christ is. Why? Well, obviously, because Jesus Christ has promised to take care of us, we find safety in him. We find protection. We find provision. But we don't get benefits without responsibilities. You can't claim Jesus and claim all the blessings and then just go your own way. Can't happen. These witnesses are protected because they stand with Jesus through all the mess first. And then they are found standing with him. They haven't moved. Now it's just physical and not just spiritual for them. If they want the blessings that only come by following Christ, they have to be willing to leave everything else behind. No other goals. No other aspirations. They have to take the risk of losing everything else to gain the assurance of gaining Jesus Christ first and foremost, and in him they gain everything. That's how believers should see our lives. We have everything in Jesus Christ. We should forget about everything else except him because we'll find everything in him. And anything that distracts us from standing with him is a lie. That's the tool of Satan to keep us away from Jesus Christ. And that's the lie of Satan that he sidetracks so many people with. Here's what he tells us. You can have Jesus... But you can have the world, too. You don't want to go all in because you might lose a whole lot otherwise. A lot of people have a hesitancy to follow Jesus Christ because they're afraid of what they have to give up. Nothing that we have to give up in following Christ is worth what we gain. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 that everything he gained from this world was dung, manure, okay? That's what he called it, because that's all it is compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospel's But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the world to come eternal life. See, the blessings of God only come when you're with God. Think about Abraham when God told him to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah. God showed him where to go. He told him exactly what to do. And and Abraham followed that to the letter of the law. 
went to Mount Moriah, took Isaac, took the wood, took the fire. And you remember the story how Isaac said, we have all the stuff, but where's the lamb? And Abraham's answer, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, there was a lot more to it than just God giving another sacrifice other than Isaac. But that's how the story went. Just as Abraham was about to kill his son Isaac, there was a ram caught in the bush. And the angel stopped Abraham and said, sacrifice that ram. God has provided that sacrifice because we know your intent. We know your heart. If Abraham had gone to another mountain, if he had waited, if he had taken somebody other than Isaac, if he hadn't followed God's plan and gone in God's place, where God's provision was, would that ram have been there? God put that ram exactly where God wanted Abraham to be. And so we can claim God's provision, but you only find God's provision in God's place. And if you're not with Jesus Christ, you can't complain about God not providing. Our provision is found in Christ, not apart from him. And so these witnesses are standing with Christ because they're with him and they have been with him. God has provided for them. God has protected them. And they go with him no matter where he goes. See, the millennial kingdom for them is just an extension of everything they've gone through so far. Psalm 91, I already mentioned, is a psalm of protection, of God's provision, of his security. But I want to read you the first verse. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the mighty. You have to be where God is in order to enjoy his protection and provision. If you don't want to be where God is, where Jesus Christ is, if you don't want to stand with Christ, you can't expect God to give you everything that you claim his promises in. Because his promises are dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. That's who he fulfills them through. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, my God shall supply all your need. Sometimes that's where, as far as we get. We say, oh, God's going to take care of it. God's going to supply our need. What's the end of the verse? According to his riches in Christ Jesus. He's not going to supply our needs through anything else. It's through Christ Jesus that he supplies. Everything is found in Jesus Christ. These people understood that. And so they turned their back on everything else. They stand with Christ. They go wherever he goes, and God protects them. Thirdly, about their character, in the end of verse 4, it says, they're redeemed from among the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. This means that God bought them back out of the world for his own purpose. Redeemed means bought back. It doesn't mean bought the first time. Now, they already belong to God because God sealed them. God made them as people. So they're God's possessions in the first place, but God redeems them and buys them back out of the world. Remember, these are Jews, okay? We know for a fact that they're alive before the tribulation starts because they're men in the seven years of the tribulation, and men don't become 30 or 40 in seven years. So they're already alive before the tribulation starts. What's the great event that happens just before the tribulation starts? The rapture of the church. If they had followed Christ and believed in Christ before the rapture, they'd be in heaven as part of the church, but they didn't. So they're saved after the tribulation starts or after the rapture. And God seals these Jews, remember, Jews who rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and after the rapture, they see the truth. 
okay? And it says God bought them back. He redeemed them out of the world. Out of the system that they had grown up in and lived in for that point of their lives up to that point. God redeemed them out of that. In Exodus chapter 23, God commands Israel that the first part of the harvest every year is to be given to the Lord as an offering. Okay, it's called the Feast of the Harvest. And and he says, when you first harvest, that first crop that you bring in, that is to be given to the Lord. It's dedicated to the Lord. You don't use that for yourself. You give it to God. Now, usually that first harvest, and I discovered this when we lived in Michigan, when people went out and cut hay, they would say, that first cutting, that's the best. It's got the best flavor, it's got the most moisture, it's got the most nutrients. That's what you want to feed your animals, that first cutting. And God told Israel, that first cutting, that belongs to me. Give God the best first. And here, these witnesses are those first fruits of the harvest. Remember I said there's a lot more people that are going to come, that are going to join in this song, but here we have the first fruits of those who come through the tribulation alive, that remnant of Israel that God has preserved, that he will redeem and bring to himself. This is the first fruits of that. And God has bought them out of that system. Even the Jewish system of rejecting the Messiah to be with Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 33, God promises to redeem and restore Israel to himself. It's called the new covenant. You thought it was given to the church. It's actually given to Israel. We are just benefactors of that covenant as the church, okay? But it's given to Israel. Romans chapter 11, it states that all Israel will be saved. That's what Paul says. But you have to put that in context because it doesn't mean everybody who's a Jew is going to be saved. Because in chapter 9, Paul states all Israel is not Israel. He's talking about spiritual Israel, those people who believe and trust in the Messiah as Jews, knowing that Christ is that promised Messiah that they've read about through their whole history and the prophecies. That's who Israel is. That's the true Israel. And we already have a remnant of Jews in Revelation 12 that God will protect in his place of refuge. Remember, we talked about Petra, or if that's the place, but God has a place of refuge. He will protect a remnant of Jews, and one-third of all the Jews who are alive in the tribulation period will come through it alive and will be redeemed by God. The 144,000 are the first fruits of that harvest. They are witnesses bought by God to represent his promise to redeem all the remnant. They're the first wave. And these witnesses are bought by God to represent his promise to redeem all of the remnant. See, it's that first portion that guarantees the rest. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the Bible says he was the first fruits of the resurrection. It means because Jesus Christ came alive, He came back from the dead through the power of God. All of us will too in his life. He was the first fruits. And then finally it says in verse 5, they're without guile in their mouths. They are without fault before God's throne. The NESB translates it this way, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now this does not mean that they are without sin, okay? Because the Bible talks about us as Christ's church as being blameless. Christ is going to present us blameless before the Father. It doesn't mean we're without sin in our personal lives. What it means is we are without sin positionally in Christ. This is that positional holiness 
that the Bible tells us. As we are redeemed in Christ, God looks at us through the blood of Christ. All of our sin has been washed away, and so we are seen just as if I have not sinned. That's what justification means. But it's through Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we are perfect in and of ourselves, and these 144,000 are not perfect in and of themselves. It's because of who they stand with. Jesus Christ makes them without sin, without a lie. Now, the whole system of government, society, and religion in the world during the tribulation is going to be based on the lies of Satan. They didn't buy into it. They have not submitted to the lie. They have held to the truth of God through the worst time of the lies of Satan in the history of the world. There's no lies in them. None of Satan's lies. None of their own supposed truth or opinion. It's all God's truth. So there are no lies found in them, in their mouth. They are blameless. What is their message? The truth of God's word, the truth of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the truth that judgment is coming against those who do not believe. That's what comes out of their mouths. So there's no guile in their mouths, there's no lies, and they are blameless, seen as blameless by God. Now, one of the qualifications for elders given in 1 Timothy 3 is that they have to be blameless. It says that. uses that word, same word as we have here, blameless. Does that mean every pastor has to be perfect and without sin? I hope not, because I'm done then. Okay? None of us qualify. In fact, there's not a single person on this planet that qualifies in that case. That's not what it means. It means our heart is geared toward the Lord in everything we do. When we sin... We come to him in repentance with genuine remorse. Remember David, a man after God's own heart, a murderer, an adulterer, a man after God's own heart? Read his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. His heart genuinely sorrowed over his sin because he offended God, not because it brought judgment on himself. That's what this means, blameless. Our hearts are geared toward Jesus Christ, toward his truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, But according to his promises, we, look, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's our goal. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What are the things that distract us from standing with Jesus, from saying the truth of Jesus Christ in our lives to other people? from living in a way that shows Jesus Christ through us. That's what the word blameless is talking about. And those things that Satan wants to distract us with are the lies of Satan that we think are important that really aren't. And all they do is draw us away from blamelessness. So these witnesses are blameless, standing before God. No lies in their life, no lies in their mouth, just the truth of God proclaimed through how they live and how they speak. So here we have these 144,000 witnesses that God seals and protects and uses to accomplish his purpose to bring his message to earth in the worst time of history. And they become an example to us. Because today we have many Christians who want to be with Jesus in heaven, but they don't want to necessarily follow him wherever he goes on this earth. Yeah, God, I'll get to heaven, but just let me have some fun for now. Many people confess Christ in order to gain all the benefits of salvation, but they don't want to give up anything in the process. And so we come to God like this, saying, God, give me what I need, but I don't want to let go of what I have. 
God can't give you anything into clenched hands. Unless we let go of what we have, God can't pour the blessings in. Lots of people want to belong to God as his children, and yet they're not willing to be brought out of the world system and philosophy. Yeah, I want God to love me, but I want the world. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to live for myself. Many want to be considered blameless and innocent by God, and yet they continue to live and speak the lies of the world that's controlled by Satan. The philosophy of the world has invaded the church and Christianity so much that if you just went to the average church today off the street, you wouldn't even recognize the truth of God in many times because it's been so perverted by the philosophy of Satan. He uses kernels of truth, and then he twists it for our advantage. I already mentioned a couple weeks ago the prosperity gospel is one of those lies. Many churches are driven by this. Many people go to church because of it. Because if we go to God, then he'll give us everything we want. That's not the way it works. That's the lie of Satan. And probably everyone wants God's protection from suffering, from evil, both in this life and the next. And yet in this life, they pledge their allegiance to the prince of this world and not to the prince of peace. God says this in Proverbs one twenty four through 29. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention or no one regarded. You neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When your distress and anguish come upon you, then will they call upon me, but I will not answer. That's God. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. You can't make the decision to stand with Christ at the end if you haven't already made the decision to stand with him now. That's what these witnesses teach us. They stood with Jesus Christ to the worst conditions, the worst persecution, the worst lies of Satan in this world. And that's what caused them to stand with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. If you want to be with those who are standing with Jesus at the end, then you must be willing to follow him now so you're with him where he is then. You must be willing to sacrifice all other goals and pleasures in this life in order to gain what he has for you later. You must be willing to speak and live the truth now, even when it's not popular, so that you'll be counted as part of his harvest when he comes back the second time. And you must be willing to suffer through whatever is dealt against you by Satan now, trusting God that he sealed you and is going to protect you and that he's redeemed you and that his promises will not fail in order to gain the protection and deliverance that his promised to his people. You cannot have God's blessings if you are not with God where he is. I just want to leave you with this final scripture as we close. I want you to imagine yourself in the midst of the tribulation, in the place of these witnesses. And understand these words as they would apply to you then, because they will have them just as we have them. 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. What is keeping you from being an overcomer of standing with Jesus Christ? 
That is the lie of Satan. It's the same lies he's going to use in the tribulation to draw people away from him. It's the same lie he uses today to draw people away from him. Are we an overcomer? Are we standing for Christ now so that we will be standing with Christ at the end? 1 Corinthians 15, I'll end with this, verses 57 and 58. But thanks be to God, which, <coughs> excuse me, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are we going to stand with Christ in this life so that we can stand with him in his kingdom? Let's pray. Lord Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ as our Savior. He is our refuge. He is our provision. We find everything in him, and so often we walk away because we get distracted by the things that we think are more important. Help us to keep our eyes on him. Help us to follow him wherever he goes so that we might be standing with him in this life and the next. Lord, impress upon us the importance of this truth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Thank you again that you promised us your provision and your protection. But Lord, help us to find it in your place as we seek you diligently. Thank you for your word today. Convict us, help us not to forget it, and help us to be doers and not hearers only, so that we might glorify you in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 376 is our closing hymn. Take time to be holy, 376. If you don't take time to be holy now, God is not.